America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, Ron, we have the honor and privilege of having Professor Steven Landsberg as a guest on our show. I'm so excited, Ron. Me too. <laughs> Big fan so, of this work. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so let's, we're going to jump right into it. I, I'm just going to quickly read the, a little bit of bio. Uh, professor Stephen E. Landsberg is Professor of Economics at the University of Rochester, where students recently elected him Professor of the Year. He is the author of The Armchair Economist, Fair Play, More Sex is Safer Sex, a fantastic book. Uh, the Big Questions, two textbooks on economics, a forthcoming textbook on general relativity and cosmology, and over 30 journal articles on mathematics, economics, and philosophy. His current research is in the area of quantum game theory. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Professor Steve Landsberg. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. And let me just jump in. I have to, uh, to we'll, we'll, we'll ask a question about your bio. What the heck is quantum game theory? <laughs> and can you give me an explanation that perhaps a layperson could understand? Oh, well, it would be easier <laughs> if we had a blackboard. But uh, 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 <laughs> briefly, uh, uh, quantum mechanics gives you access to particles that behave nothing at all like the particles that you're used to dealing with in your everyday life, and it turns out that in strategic situations, uh, people can use that odd behavior to coordinate their actions in ways they wouldn't otherwise be able to coordinate their actions, and so it turns out that there are all kinds of ways that uh, 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 a couple of airlines, for example, could use that quantum behavior to uh, collude with each other in ways that regulators would be unable to detect. And quantum game theory, uh, all of that technology is uh, hard to come by at the moment, but it's easy to come by in physics labs and may be easy to come by on your desktop in another five years. So quantum game theory is, is about figuring out how people's strategic behavior is going to change as they get access to that technology. Interesting. Is it? Is there a little bit of behavioral economics thrown in there, or is that two different, completely there different absolutely things? Absolutely, no behavioral economics thrown in there. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the behavior of these quantum particles, but the the individuals in this theory are behaving absolutely like the cold-hearted, uh, purely rational beings that we assume in classical economics. 
Fantastic. All right. Well, we, we will definitely get into that uh, more a little bit later. But I, I, I want to back up a little bit. One of the, the most profound things I, that you have said and I've read, and I often use this line when talking to people, is that most of economics can be boiled down to four words. People respond to incentives and the rest is commentary. So, if recently in your blog, which I'm sorry to hear you're, you're having some trouble with, by the way, because it's a it's a fantastic blog, the big questions, and we'll put all it's of this in our minor, show. It's a very minor problem. It means that pages are taking two seconds to load instead of taking a tenth of yeah. a second to load. But we're we're working on fixing it, and it's it's perfectly usable. <laughs> yes. It, oh, it is perfectly usable, but it was just uh, interesting, your post. But um, So, I want to talk a little bit about, let's, we'll do some presidential politics here, that uh, Hillary Clinton has proposed that companies be enticed, and I'll use that word in quotations or air quotes, to do more profit sharing. On the face of it, it seems like a good idea. Why do you think that's not a good idea? Um, profit sharing is available to any employee at a corporation who wants to profit share. All you have to do is take part of your salary and invest it in stock in that company. Uh, it's not something I would generally advise because uh, you usually don't want your savings tied up in the same company that your salary is coming from. Uh, if that company goes south, then you're going to lose on two fronts instead of one. But if you want to take that kind of risk, if you want to share in the profits of your company, it's easy to do. Again, you take some of your earnings and you buy stock. Now, uh, what Hillary Clinton is hoping you're going to envision is that somehow the company will give you that stock or give you the equivalent of that stock without taking it out of your salary. But that's impossible because companies have a finite amount of resources, and if they give you more of one thing, they've got to give you less of another. So if they give you more in terms of profit sharing, they're going to be giving you less in terms of wages. And uh, again, uh, you, you might prefer that, but if you prefer it, you can do it now. You don't need it forced upon you. And so uh, basically give people the choice is really ultimately the, the, the explanation. And, and, people, and people today so, have the choice. People today have that choice. We're not. Hillary Clinton's plan does not give them any new choices that they don't already have. Instead, it it makes choices for them. It says we're going to choose to take some of your salary and put it into company stock for you. Great. It's not only does it take away your choice, but in my opinion, it directs you toward uh, toward the unwise choice. Now, switching our, our focus to to Donald Trump. Uh, he has often been, uh, I've heard him say, we're getting killed on trade. <laughs> why, why is this economic drivel, as you put it? It is economic drivel. I mean, trade is, uh, trade is the lifeblood of the economy. Uh, tr trade, is, trade is the source, ultimately, of all our wealth. Trade is the reason we're not living in caves and, uh, and, and surviving on, uh, on stray animal bones. We... Uh, uh, I mean, so many, uh, there, there has been so much drivel on this subject recently, uh, and the underlying misconception, and I find it so hard to imagine that people fall for this, but the underlying misconception is that we gain from trade when we get to sell things, and we lose from trade when we buy things from abroad. But, of course, you know, if you really believe that, if you really believe that, if you really think that, that it's good to build things and ship them abroad, and bad to bring things into the country from abroad, nothing's stopping you. Go to work all day, build all kinds of things, and send them to someone in France, and don't ask for anything in return. Um, that's what Donald Trump is telling you is going to make you better off. If we produce more stuff, if we work hard in order to produce stuff, 
that we're going to send out to the rest of the world and limit the amount of stuff that comes back. Again, if you believe that, if you believe that can make you richer, go ahead, do it, devote your life to producing things and giving them away to foreigners. Uh, I don't think it's going to make you any richer. It certainly can't make the country any richer, and it's just crazy to think that it can. Uh, and <laughs> policies it... that are designed, policies that are designed to make us do more of that, policies that are designed to make us work harder so that we can send more things abroad without, uh, without the other side of trade, without having goods come into the country. That's where we really gain from trade. I mean, what, what uh, if you're a, a relatively poor American, what has, what has improved your life more than the opportunity to buy cheap goods from abroad? You go into Walmart and you can buy a, a really good shirt for 5 6 $7.00 that would have cost you $35, $40, $45 if it had been made in the United States. Uh, that's where the gains from trade come. And to suggest that we want to cut that stuff off while continuing to encourage exports is just it's, it's to say that, that uh, uh, we want to throw away all the benefits of trade. It's crazy. It's completely crazy. I mean, I'm not an economist, but I have studied it enough to know that didn't didn't Bastiat, you know, talk about this in the 1700s? Like, by this logic, would would be good that all ships sink at sea? Right, <laughs> right. I mean, that way, uh, we get to if all the ships sink at sea, then we get to export like crazy, and we don't have to import anything. Uh, when you when you when you uh, or uh, you know it. It's the same argument over and over again, but when people tell me that uh, our economy is being damaged by foreign car makers who sell us cars below cost, I always say in response, well, you know, it could be so much worse. Imagine if they gave every American a free Lexus. Think how bad off they'd be. <laughs> uh, it, it's, 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 just, it's just a completely crazy way of thinking, and it's it is so common, so many people fall for it, that's why it's paying off for Donald Trump. I find it absolutely next to impossible to understand why people fall for such an obvious fallacy. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. So, uh, I, in full disclosure, I am a uh, full-on member of the Libertarian Party, and I know you don't endorse candidates, but but you you did post that that uh, Gary Johnson and William will have a nice ad. So, are you how how do you feel about well, their campaign I'm, so far? I'm, I'm going to be uh, all right, uh, so um, uh, if if we are free here to to talk about politics and particular politicians, then I I will tell you my current thinking on the matter. I am sure. Please do. <laughs> I'm absolutely broken-hearted by the major party choices. I think uh, uh, Trump is is as bad a candidate as I can possibly imagine. And when I say a bad candidate, I don't just mean a bad campaigner. I mean somebody who would be a bad president. Uh, I don't see any evidence that he's ever thought about anything in his life. Uh, we're having his 97th pivot this week where he's uh, uh, saying that he's going to change and try to stop offending people, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem with Trump is not that he offends people. The problem with Trump is that he doesn't think. And, and there's no, uh, I don't see any, he's not making any promises to change that. And I don't think at age 70 he's going to. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm brokenhearted over these things. Hillary Clinton, as you pointed out, has, uh, has, has uh, been peddling a lot of drivel of her own. Um, and, uh, uh, 
I feel much, much, much better about Gary Johnson than I do about either of those two. Uh, at a purely uh, political level, my gut feeling, and I'm not a political scientist, I'm not a politician, I'm not an expert on this, so take this for what it's worth, but in my opinion, he's really blowing an opportunity by reaching out so far to the left that he's missing his opportunity to reach out to the right. Uh, it, it, my feeling is that there are an awful lot of uh, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Carly Fiorina Republicans out there, uh, Rick Perry, Scott Walker Republicans, who have nowhere to go and would jump at a chance to vote for Gary Johnson if he would just remind them that he's on their side. But he seems to be working so hard to appeal to the Bernie Sanders people uh, that that I think he's he's passing up that opportunity to reach out to the right where there are a lot of votes. Now, again, I say that I'm a professor of economics. I'm not a guy who studies politics. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is a brilliant strategy, but I, I, it, it, I, it looks wrong to me. Fair enough. And but I, I do have this this last question before we hit our first break. And as as I mentioned, this is flying by already. But regardless of who becomes the president of the United States, if 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 Professor Steven Landsberg is brought in on day one and and asked to give some economic advice to that person, what would that what would it be? Uh, what would it be? You know, you, I, I think uh, uh, there's not going to be anything creative about this. Uh, we want lower taxes. We want particularly lower taxes on investment and saving. You want to skew the tax code to discourage consumption, not to discourage production. Uh, we want lower regulations. We want uh, uh, more to unleash the power of markets, and uh, you know, that's a very broad statement. We can bring that down to specifics in all kinds of ways. Um, uh, you know, market by market, the healthcare market, uh, uh, there are all kinds of creative ideas out there for replacing Obamacare that, that should be given uh, careful thought. Um, unleashing the power of markets, and that means enforcing property rights, enforcing contracts, Limiting regulations, lowering taxes, and in particular, lowering taxes on investment. And of course, if you're going to lower taxes, you also got to cut spending, uh, cut a lot of entitlement spending. Uh, uh, some, uh, uh, not all entitlements need to be cut, but most of them do. Uh, you know, all, all that all that stuff that that probably ninety percent of your other guests would have said exactly the same thing. Not necessarily, but we appreciate appreciate it for sure. Well, we are up against our first break, and after the break, Ron's going to ask you about some of your books. I was I was given the assignment of the the blog, so Ron's going to get you on some of your books. But right now, we are want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or myself at asktsoe at verisage Also, follow us along on Twitter at hashtag AskTSOE during the show. If you're listening right now and have a question for Professor Landsberg, go ahead and tweet that out, uh, hashtag AskTSOE, and we will try to work that into one of our last two segments. But right now, we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are Leading Results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with one of my economic mentors, Professor Stephen Landsberg. He's written four, uh, well, he's written more than that, but he's written four fantastic books. We'll post them all in our show notes. Professor, I wanted to ask you, I think you give one of the greatest reasons why economists should hold on to the assumption of rationality, you know, your helium balloon example. Why, why do you insist on uh, holding on to the assumption of rationality? You know, I, I'm sure that not all human behavior uh, uh, can be explained uh, on the basis of strict rationality. I, I'm, I know of counterexamples in my own family. But uh, uh, the rational part of human behavior is the part that we have the best chance of explaining and understanding, and fortunately it's a big part. Rationality is defined very broadly in economics. It doesn't mean that you're pursuing something sensible. It only means that whatever you're pursuing you're pursuing it in the ways that seem to you to be most likely to succeed. That's all we mean by rationality, is that people want things, whatever you want, we're willing to call it rational, uh, whatever the things are that you want, as long as you are pursuing strategies that, in your best judgment, are are most likely to succeed compared to other strategies. Uh, Much of the time, people behave that way, and that's the part of their behavior that we have the best chance of understanding. So that's the part we want to focus on. Now, sometimes I see people do things that make no sense to me at all, and I have two choices. I can either say, oh, well, that must be uh, one of these occasions when he's not being rational, and then I walk away and I haven't learned anything. Or I can say, maybe there's some rationality going on here that is invisible to me. Maybe I should think about it and try to understand what is rational about that behavior. I won't always succeed, but occasionally I will succeed, and when I do succeed, I will have really learned something 
about that person's situation, about the problems that person is facing, about the, the situation that person is in, and about why those strategies that looked crazy to me might not be so crazy after all. So by starting with the assumption that behavior is rational and looking for the rationality behind the apparently irrational, I have a chance of learning something. doesn't always work, but it works a fair amount of the time. On the other hand, if I allow myself to just say, well, anything I don't understand is irrational, then I never learn anything, and that's not the road I want to go down. Right, and I know you give many examples of, of learning new things by holding on to that assumption, like why we continue to use 99-cent pricing or why movie theater popcorn is so expensive. I, you know, David Friedman says uh, the assumption of rationality can explain roughly 50% of our behavior. Do, do you think behavioral economics sheds any light on maybe some of the other 50%? I don't know where he came up with 50%. I would have guessed higher, but I would have had no faith in my guess. Uh, <laughs> the um, uh, behavioral economics, I think, shows tremendous promise because it incorporates uh, real knowledge that we get from the neuroscientists and the, and the people who work in related fields. They know a lot of things about how people think, and if we're trying to understand how people think and how people behave... Uh, we shouldn't throw that knowledge away. So I think they're, I think they're on a um, a noble quest to find a way to incorporate that into economic theory in a way that is useful. So far, I don't see a big payoff. I, I don't see anything that these guys have really explained or predicted uh, where they've done a significantly better job than classical economics has done. But. Uh, it's early yet. This is a new subject, and I think it's got a lot of promise. Right. They've certainly been welcomed into the economics profession, right? Absolutely. I mean, guys like Kahneman. Who, yeah, yeah, which I think is a sign of health and robust that you're taking in people with outside views and that are challenging maybe the standard assumptions. Well, I, I mean, it, it certainly is true that, that, in my experience, economists, like to have the worldview shaken up on a on on at least a yearly basis. Uh, we 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 get pretty bored with people just repeating things that we already believe. We like to see new ways of thinking about things, and new ways of thinking are rewarded. Those are the people who who uh, are in demand. Those are the people who get invited places to give talks, and those are the people who get the good jobs. And and that's as it should be. I'm glad it's that way. Yeah. Excellent. You know, in that book also, The Armchair Economist, you have a chapter, it's towards the end, it might be the concluding chapter, Why I'm Not an Environmentalist, <laughs> The Science of Economics Versus the Religion of Ecology, and you give the story about how you were lectured by a bunch of four and five-year-olds uh, on safe energy sources and ma mass transportation and recycling, and I, I, I'm not sure if you wrote it in that book or maybe a blog post, but you said you tried to throw away your recycling bin many times, and do you know how hard it is to throw away a recycling bin? Has, <laughs> which I thought was hysterical. But has has your opinion on that changed, or do you still no, have those I, same views? It, uh, I, I, I don't think my opinion on that has changed at all. It has perhaps become a little more urgent as we, as we deal more and more with uh, uh, climate change as, a, as an important policy issue. Uh, the the, the, the key point is that we care about our environments, and our environment 
does not just consist of the number of particles in the air of various different sorts or the number of particles in the water of various sorts. We care about that stuff. That's part of our environment. But another part of my environment is... Uh, is is the is the comfort of my car another part of my environment is the time that i spend on trains and the time that i spend on buses another part of my environment is the temperature and the humidity in my bedroom those are all part of my environment also and we are constantly making trade-offs where we make one part of our environment a little better at the cost of making another part of our environment a little bit worse and to some extent the choices that I make are going to impact on you, and the choices that you make are going to impact on me, and that's why we have policy issues that need to be decided here. That's why this stuff comes into the political realm. But what I object to is the notion that one person's choices are somehow morally better than another person's choices. Some people will prefer more of one kind of comfort and less of another. Other people will disagree. As much as possible, we should find ways for us to each, within our own localized environment, make the choices we want to make. Insofar as our choices impact on each other, we should come up with uh, political mechanisms that allow us to settle those issues without killing each other. Uh, but the idea that because one person uh, would rather have uh, one person is willing to sacrifice ten thousand dollars worth of income in order to keep the global temperature down by half a degree, and another person is not willing to do that. That's a that's a that's a uh, that's diversity. That's different people having different preferences, different people making different choices, and to suggest that these things are moral issues is what I object to. Uh, it, it is not a moral issue to say that I'm willing to have more of one thing in order to have less of another, and that my choice happens to be the opposite of yours. Right. I mean, it's kind of your rules of the cost-benefit tool, right? You say only individuals matter, and all individuals matter equally. And it just seems so many times with these governmental policies, whether it's environment or regulation, they violate those rules all the time by saying, oh, this will be good for society. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, look, a rising, a rising uh, global temperature is definitely going to be good for some people and bad for other people. It's going to uh, uh, be, uh, at certain levels, it becomes bad for agriculture in Kansas, and it becomes good for agriculture in Greenland. And uh, different people are going to care more about one of those things and less about another of those things. Uh, again, there is room for diversity. Unfortunately, it also means that we somehow have to make these decisions, but I think we ought to make these decisions in an atmosphere where we respect the fact that it's okay for different people to care about different things. Right, and at least take into account the benefits. It seems like everybody just focuses on the costs and the negative externalities. Well, not only do people focus on the costs, but of course they, they in some cases, they dramatically exaggerate those costs. Uh, people talk about what will happen uh, when the oceans rise, by, and they, they envision New York City being totally underwater, and they, uh, they view that as, uh, you know, a, a, they cost that out by saying, let's look at the total value of all the buildings in New York City and... Uh, 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 there's the cost of having the waters rise. But, and it's actually David Friedman who has spoken about this most articulately. That's a crazy way to think about it. The fact is 
that none of the buildings that are currently standing in New York City are going to be there 100 years from now anyway, because buildings wear out. We tear them down, we replace them. If the water is slowly rising, then we will replace them a little bit further inland, and that's not a lot more costly than replacing them in their current positions. Moving, when people think about moving New York inland, they say, oh my God, we would have to rebuild the city from scratch into the cost of that. Well, we're going to be rebuilding the city from scratch anyway over the next hundred years. Uh, the question is not what's the cost of that. The question is what's the additional cost of doing it in a slightly different location. Uh, that's the honest reckoning of the cost. Those are not costs we should ignore. They are significant costs. We should account for them, but we shouldn't exaggerate them. And so, uh, yeah, you know, we do get a lot of dishonesty about that, and I think that dishonesty is always a bad thing. And, you know, I, I, I hate the whole binary classification, climate believer, climate change believer versus denier. But are you on whole optimistic that mankind can adjust even if the climate is warning, warming and that we, we will somehow adapt to the new environment? Well, there are, there are at least three aspects to that. One is uh, what's actually happening with... Uh, with uh, climate change and how much of that is anthropogenic and how much of that is caused by people. That's a scientific question. I'm not competent to judge that. I do know a little bit of science and I do know a little bit of math. Uh, I don't have a lot of faith in those climate models because it looks to me like uh, people talk about all the different climate models. To me, at least as a somewhat educated amateur, it looks to me like they're all the same model. They're the Navier-Stokes equations, if you're familiar with that jargon, and they've got the Navier-Stokes equations, and that's all they've got, and they have no idea really how to solve them, so they have all these different ways of approximating solutions, and I don't think they have any good theory of how good those approximations are. So I've got a lot of skepticism about the value of the predictions they're making. Now, maybe if I were better educated, I would not have that skepticism. I don't know. Uh, the second question is, if we take these forecasts at face value, are they going to, on balance, be good or bad? And that, that is uh, much less clear than a lot of people will have you believe. As I said before, an extra degree of temperature is bad for agriculture in Kansas, and it's good for agriculture in Greenland. And you might say, well, there are a lot more people in Kansas than in Greenland, but the answer to that is if the climate changes, that's not going to be true anymore. People are going to move. Uh, they'd rather not move, and that's a cost which we should account for, but it, it's, it's, it's not the same as uh, making the false assumption that people will stay in the places that have gotten too hot. They won't stay in the places that have gotten too hot. So, so here we come into a little more economics, and I think that the, uh, the assumptions that people make when they look at the economic side of this are often clearly way too pessimistic. They tend to assume that people will not adjust, uh, whereas, in fact, we know from history that when climate changes, people do adjust. When the environment in any way changes, people adjust, and that mitigates the costs. So, so that's the second thing. The third thing is, will there be new technologies uh, that will overcome a lot of the biggest costs of this stuff? And the answer to that, of course, is... At one level, nobody knows, but at another level, I think we can say safely that the history of the last 200, 250 years is that technology has surprised us at every turn. Whenever there's been a big problem and a big incentive to solve that problem, people have made fantastic technological advances that nobody else would have predicted, 
that's been the history of the last 250 years. I tend to be optimistic that that's going to continue, although, again, uh, there, uh, of course, no one can see the future, so who knows. Right, right. No, I'm with you. If I was a betting man, I'd, I'd bet, I'd bet on the on the human race. But, Professor, this has been great. Uh, we're up against our next break, and folks, we'd like to remind you, you can follow the show at thesoulofenterprise.com. I will post full show notes on our discussion with Professor Landsberg, along with links to where you can find his books, his blogs, and other information about him. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Quanta CRM. <laughs> Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We believe great companies can become even greater by challenging the status quo within their companies. The latest challenge to your status quo? The way people buy has changed. Buyers now control the majority of the front end of the sales process. Sellers must learn to facilitate a buying process, not conduct a sales process. Social buying signals are an opportunity for sales. Learn more. Go to quantacrm.com slash ABC to request a copy of the white paper. Always be closing a guide to the new art of social selling. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and we're back on the soul of enterprise with professor steven landsberg author of the armchair economist fair play more sexes safer sex and the big questions professor i mentioned to you uh, during a break that I had the great opportunity to see you speak at the National Center for Policy Analysis here in Dallas uh, at an event that they held. And the subject was income inequality, which is just something that has has been a a pet topic of mine for quite some time. And uh, one of the things you opened with is a reminder to the audience that everyone in the audience is among the wealthiest people who have ever lived. So if we're truly concerned about the 1%, we have to take into account all, I guess, 106 billion people that have come before us, don't we? Oh, if you're listening to this radio show, you are among the top 1%. Uh, no question about that. If you've got time to listen to this radio show, if you did not have to be at this moment out there filling a field or working in a kitchen uh, or, or, or uh, working at a factory, if you had an hour free to listen to the radio you are well among the top 1% of all time. Uh, until a couple of hundred years ago, almost nobody ever lived above the subsistence level. 
And what has risen us above that is uh, the, the confluence of two things, capitalism and science, uh, which, which grew together uh, a couple hundred years ago and have led to these incredible levels of wealth that would have been unthinkable, unimaginable to your great-great-grandparents. Uh, so uh, uh, when we talk about income inequality, and there is a lot of income inequality, and, and it seems to be, for the time being, growing, um, keep in mind that even the very poorest people alive today are not substantially worse off than they would have been uh, a few hundred years ago, even if they had been near the top of society, because everybody but the top few percent at that time we're starving, and if you're not starving now, then you are better off already than you would have been then, and um, uh, it's something to maybe stop for a moment and be thankful for. I, I've often said I start presentations with, I'd rather be alive anywhere in the world today than a member of the Court of St. James in 1800. You know, uh, just I think access to antibiotics. There are, there are a couple places <laughs> I think, you know, maybe there are places in Syria right now that I would not choose. But uh, uh, overwhelmingly, if I had to be a randomly chosen person in the world today versus a member of the Court of St. James, then there's no contest. Yes, because one of the things you mentioned was wealth, wealth inequality is a new problem because previously to the century, it all sucked. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Wealth inequality <laughs> is, it is, there was no wealth inequality in the 16th century because in the 16th century, everyone was starving. Uh, there was a king and a queen and a few other people who weren't, but essentially everyone was starving. There, there's your income, there's your income equality, there's your wealth equality. I don't think anyone wants to go back to that. And uh, uh, we, uh, uh, for the most part, a rising tide has lifted all boats. Uh, uh, the whole world is getting richer, and it's happening uh, at a tremendous rate. I mean, all of China, all of India is coming along. Uh, fantastically wealthier than they were just a few decades ago, uh, and and we see that continuing all over the world. I have a, a an idea. I haven't had you know chance to to look into this, and I'm not a formal trained uh, uh, data analysis person. But I, I just if you looked at say the top ten percent of you know pick the United States, let's say right top ten percent, and then did a quintile analysis of that top ten percent. My guess is is that you would see a similar pattern to what has emerged from inequality. In other words, the 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 bottom quintile of the top ten percent would probably do the same thing that the bottom ten percent overall did. Does that make sense? I, it makes sense. I I don't have numbers in front of me, and I can't tell you if it's right or not. Right. No. 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 I I I'm not saying, but I'm just saying in the in theory. But anyway, just wanted to test that by. I just had that thought. But uh, the other thing I want. To, uh, to, to mention to you, and you, you you brought this up, and I think this is a just a fascinating topic, you know. And I'm uh, I'm turning fifty this year, so it, the, your your timing on the dates was just perfect. You said in 1965, an average uh, American, or since 1965, the average American has gained 6.5 hours of leisure per week, and low income folks have gained 14 hours of leisure per week. And then I think you made a joke about, well, you know, how come we tax an hour of work but not an hour of leisure? And I just think that that is just a great, a great point that nobody really thinks about or factors into the equation at all. Absolutely. This is one of many ways in which the poorest Americans are much better off now than they used to be. Uh, the, uh, 
in ways that don't show up in those income statistics. Uh, if you are, if you were earning a certain amount of money 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, or your father was earning a certain amount of money 40 years ago, and you're earning the same amount now, but you're working 14 hours a week less than your father or your grandfather was, then you are substantially better off. Your income might be the same as your grandfather's income. It's, it's not, okay? Uh, there's almost nobody in America who's not earning a lot more than their grandparents did. Uh, even the poorest are earning, by and large, a lot more than their grandparents did. But even for those for whom that's not true, even if you're earning no more than your grandparents, you're still far better off because you're working so much less. Uh, 14 hours a week less, on average, for, for, for the poorest Americans. Um, uh, beyond that, there are so many other uh, ways in which life has become better that don't get counted in those income statistics. Your television set, instead of showing three channels in black and white, now shows 500 channels in color, and you can watch what you want at the time when you want to watch it. Uh, all of that is an important part of the quality of life. It, it's... It, 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 I'm not saying that having that stuff makes you as well off as the wealthiest Americans, but it's not nothing either, and it doesn't get counted directly in the income statistics, and uh, uh, therefore those statistics really, really do underestimate how much better life has gotten for those people at the bottom. You even mentioned that that uh, healthcare, and this is this was a shocking thing to I think many in the audience. Healthcare today is better than it was as a better bargain. This is specifically the word you use: better bargain than it was in 1965. You know, I recently uh, was told by I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say his name, but because just in case I misquote him, but I, I'm 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 virtually certain I'm quoting him, quoting him accurately. Uh, a very famous economist who has worked hard on these numbers, and what he told me was this. If you, if you want to know the trend in the quality of health care, the first thing you might want to do is ignore the effects of AIDS because AIDS arguably was a one-time blip that uh, does not show us anything about the general trend in health care. Now, you could argue that either way. You could argue uh, that maybe uh, it's okay to ignore AIDS, maybe it's not. If you choose to ignore it, then what you find is that the quality of health care in the United States in 1975, as measured by infant mortality, as measured by longevity, as measured by any standard you want to measure that's usually used for these things, the quality of health care in America in 1975 was the same as what we're seeing in the poorest parts of the third world today. The poorest parts of the third world today are getting the same health care that Americans got 40 years ago. That's how much better health care has gotten in America over 40 years. That's how much better it's gotten in the third world over the last 40 years. Uh, that's fantastic. There is not an informed American, I wager to say, there is not a single informed American who would prefer 1975-level health care at 1975 prices to today's level health care at today's prices. Uh, given that choice, anybody who knew what he was doing would take today's health care at today's prices, and that's got to mean, despite all the inefficiencies and despite all the horrible mistakes that have been made in the way our health care system is run, nevertheless, health care is still a better bargain today than it's ever been. 
Outstanding. I, and this is the kind of thinking that I, I love from you and is, is available all over your blog site, which we will post as part of our show notes. And of course, folks, we do encourage you to read Professor Landsberg's books. They are very accessible. And as Ron mentioned earlier, not only that, but his textbooks are. I have not read the textbooks, but I had re- have read the others. Uh, and we want to remind you that uh, right now, we can, you can get a hold of us at thesoulofenterprise.com. Please keep those reviews of the podcast on iTunes coming and also the book that we have out. Uh, love, those are the currency that we use. But right now, we want to hear from our final sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with who I think is one of the greatest economic writers out there, uh, Professor Stephen Landsberg. And Professor, the, the, the old joke that you know, if psychologists want to sell more books, they talk about how you can have more sex. And if economists want to sell more books, they talk about how you can have more money. Uh, but your book is More Sex is Safer Sex. So coming from an economist, that's kind of interesting. And since you and Ed had talked about AIDS a little bit, I just want to ask you, what is the premise of that, more sex is safer sex? Can you explain? Well, the the, the, the key idea, the key economic idea is that when we make choices and do not have to live with the consequences of those choices, we often make choices that are bad for our neighbors. Uh, that's why the world has too much pollution, because polluters don't always have to breathe the pollution that they put into the air, and therefore uh, uh, many times they pollute more than, than, from a social point of view, we think they should. Um, if you carry that over... To the question of uh, whether people are having too much or too little casual sex, uh, start with the start by imagining that you are a person who is 
very promiscuous, very reckless, very likely to be infected with something terrible. When I say, let's suppose that you are that person, I don't mean you personally, I'm, this is a generic you here, uh, but uh, uh, suppose you're this very promiscuous, unsafe person, uh, then every time you have sex with a, a, a new partner, you are subjecting them to risks that they are unaware of. And that's very like polluting the, the partner pool that people are, are uh, uh, drawing the partners from. It's, it's very like pollution. You are causing harm to other people in ways that you may not care about and that they're not aware of, and so therefore uh, it, there is arguably a case for discouraging people like you from having sex. We ought to tax you for having sex if we could. <laughs> but the right. other side of that, the other side of that um, uh, equation is that if you are a particularly safe person, a person who has always been very cautious and are therefore very unlikely to be infected with anything, then uh, every time you take a, a new partner, you're doing them a favor. They are getting luckier than they realize. They're, uh, they thought you were of average risk and thought you were worth having sex with. If they had known that you were below average risk, think how much more they would have wanted to have sex with you. They're getting a deal. They're getting a bargain. Um, we want more people like you out there because your partners are getting benefits from pairing up with you, unexpected benefits, just like the other guys' uh, partners are getting unexpected costs. And so ideally, uh, you would want to subsidize the very cautious people to get them to have more sex. Now, if that sounds crazy to you, I just want to point out that the argument here is exactly the same argument that gets used for taxing polluters or for cap-and-trade, things like that. But the argument always is that if people are causing damage to other people, we ought to tax that. If people are causing uh, uh, benefits to other people, we ought to subsidize that to encourage more of it. Uncautious right. people, when they have more sex, are causing damage to other people. By the same argument, we ought to tax that. Very cautious people, when they have more sex, are conferring benefits on other people. By the same argument, we want to subsidize that. Right, and I love that. Much, much more to that story, actually. But I, I, I know we have limited time, so that's just <laughs> the beginning of the. That's just the tip of the iceberg on why you might want to subsidize certain people to have more sex. Uh, there's a lot more to the story after that. Right, there is, and folks, you're going to have to read the book. More sex is safer sex. Again, it's just it's fantastic. Another thing in that book, professor, and this really resonated with me because I had a really great economics teacher at San Francisco State who made me read the research of Isaac Ehrlich on the death penalty. And ever since, every time I hear somebody say on TV, oh, there's no empirical data that the death penalty is a deterrent, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. What about this guy? He came up with somewhere between 8 and 24 deaths are deterred for every person put in the chair. What, what's, your, what's your take on the death penalty? Well, it's, it's not just Isaac Ehrlich. I mean, there is a vast, vast literature uh, finding very significant uh, deterrent effects from the death penalty. Now, I suppose you could argue that all of that literature is flawed. I suppose you could argue that there is some terrible uh, uh, error in the statistical analysis that people are repeating and repeating. And may But to say that there is no evidence, to say this literature doesn't exist, 
it's just a lie. It's just anybody who says there's not evidence that capital punishment is an extremely strong deterrent is lying to you. There's a vast amount of evidence, uh, and and the evidence comes. Isaac Ehrlich was the pioneer professor at the University of Buffalo. He was the pioneer in this, but hundreds and hundreds of researchers have come after him and working with different data sets, different techniques, finding the same thing over and over again. There is also a much smaller literature where people have found relatively small deterrent effects. So uh, uh, it's, uh, the, the result is not unanimous, but it's very, very strong, as strong, I think, as strong, I think, as you can expect to find in the social science. Uh, the way I read it, the bulk of the evidence clearly points to a very strong deterrent effect. Um, and again, if you, if you don't think so, that's your right, but uh, you need to point to what in these papers it is that you think they're doing wrong. Uh, uh, this is not just a bunch of people saying that the, out of the blue that this is what they believe. This is a bunch of very careful researchers looking very carefully at data, uh, if you think that they're working with the data wrong, uh, fine. Point to the line in the article where you think they went wrong. Uh, and above all, don't deny that those papers exist. Right, and Ehrlich himself was against the death penalty, right, for religious reasons. Ehrlich himself is, is very much against the death penalty. I've spoken to him about this recently. He believes that, uh, and you quoted exactly the right numbers, that each execution prevents anywhere from 8 to 24 murders, which is, which is a, a, a huge effect. Uh, is. He is also opposed to the death penalty because he does not like the idea of empowering the government to kill people because he thinks eventually they will misuse that power. And I, I understand his concern. On the other hand, the size of this effect is so enormous. If it were two or three or four murders even, I could see his position. When it's 8 to 24, I don't see his position, although I, I, I see where he came to it. But, uh, but I don't agree with him. Right. I once heard a criminologist, I think it was Ernst von den Haag, who said, if we really want to test this, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you commit murder, you get life in prison, no parole. You do it on <laughs> Tuesday, Thursday, or the weekend, you get the death penalty, and let's see if there's any effects. <laughs> well, that, that to, be, to be fair, is not a completely fair uh, uh, experiment, because in that world, everybody who wanted to commit murder on Monday would wait until Tuesday. Uh, uh, when we compare a world where there is no Tuesday, uh, that's, a, that's a different experiment. So it's, it's very right. clever, but I don't think it's fair. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> what, one last thing, and we've only got one minute, but, so, but I just love this. You know, the, the FDA commissioner, he can make two types of errors, can approve a drug that kills people, which will get him fired, or he can just delay a drug that could, could save many people, but nobody will ever know. You actually suggest to pay the FDA commissioner in pharma stock. You think that would actually work? I think it would help. I think the the problem, uh, and you 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 worded it very well, is that FDA commissioners often delay the appearance of good drugs, and the, those delays kill people. And uh, they have very little incentive. I mean, we're all human beings, and we all care about doing a good job, so they have some incentive, but they have very little direct incentive to care about that kind of mistake because that's a mistake that when you make it, nobody knows you made that mistake. Uh, we, we want to do something to counter that, and one way to do that would be to say, okay, we're going to reward you for every drug that you approve. And one way to do that is to, is to pay them in pharma stock. Right. No, I think that's actually think that's brilliant because this idea that the FDA saves lives, guys like Sam Peltzman and others have found that they've actually probably killed more people. 
Sam Feldman found that. It was quite a long time ago, back in the 70s. Uh, I'm not familiar with more recent research on this, but Feldman certainly found, uh, doing his research in the 70s, that the FDA uh, had killed more people by delaying drugs than they had saved by keeping bad drugs off the market. Well, fantastic. Professor Landsberg, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for appearing on The Soul of Enterprise. We're such big fans. Keep up the great work on the blog, your books. We'll continue to sit out here and read everything you write. So we thank you so Thanks much. Thanks so much. I'm just going to say this. The blog is thebigquestions.com. Beautiful. And we will post that up on our show notes, folks. And Ed, what do we have up for next week? Well, we're sticking with sort of with economic topics. We're having a free rider Friday, Ron, so we'll get to talk about anything we want next week. Excellent. I look forward to it. See you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage. Energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world, the imagination of our people, and smart technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. <laughs>